everyone. On today's episode, I talked to Jeff Trepression, the general manager of Nyman Ranch. We talk about my recent trip to Iowa, the experience Nyman creates for eaters, and how farmers are our heroes. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nierenberg. In September, I, I spent some time in Iowa with the Nyman Ranch folks to celebrate their 20th anniversary. And I had the, the chance to meet Jeff Trepression, uh, the general manager of Nyman. Trip, as, as he is called, is kind of a force to be reckoned with. He, he joined the company 12 years ago after many of, uh, years working in the food industry in different ways. Uh, he has more than um, all, or nearly 30 years of experience helping, uh, helping companies develop their, their operations and their products. He became famous for the, de- the development of the Milk Mustache Campaign which is still used by the dairy industry today. And he has worked for Coleman Natural, Procter & Gamble, uh, Borden, uh, the International Dairy Foods Association, uh, Frontier Natural Products. And he was the president and owner of his own company uh, as as well. Um, Tripp, I'm so excited you could join us today. I know we had uh, a few hiccups uh, getting to this call, but I really appreciate your your willingness to be here. Do you want to add anything to your bio? No, I'm already blushing, but I, <laughs> I appreciate it. And I, I thanks for taking the time and, and for joining us uh, out in Des Moines for that celebration with the farmers. It's always uh, the highlight of our year. You know, it was so fun. I had such a great time. Too much of a good time, I think, at that last dinner, but it was so <laughs> much fun. Yeah. Um, the way I like to start off these podcasts uh, and, and let people get to know you is by asking your favorite food memory. And I know you've worked in the food industry for a long time, but I, I also know you like food. Do you have a memory you'd like to share? Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, working at Nyman, that is a uh, tough task. And so it's, it's less about the food um, and more about the experience. Mm-hmm. And so I'll give you one at, um, heck, nearly 12 years ago when we had just acquired Nyman. Um, and we're rolling the line or making the line available to different markets. And we were in Chicago and we met with the executive chef um, at Gibson Grill. Uh, at Gibson's. And we had a wonderful conversation. He put the line and he put the pork chop on the menu. Gibson's had no pork on the menu at that point. And they invited us back, um, myself and one of one of our vice presidents, uh, to sit and, and experience the first day of the product being. We were very excited. We thought we were honored guests. And what we found out very quickly is we were the first line of answering questions mm-hmm. for the, the the patrons at Gibson's. And so we spent a good part of the evening. Uh, as people were being introduced to the product as a special menu and the, their staff was very excited about the idea and, and the storytelling, um, we found ourselves going table to table for several hours. Like a it's, wedding. Like, yeah. And, and it was interesting because we found ourselves, um, you know, being a cheerleader for what our farmers do mm-hmm. and being able to bring it to wonderful places, which of course occurs all the time, but we don't get to ex- experience it in the first day. Mm-hmm. Normally, mm-hmm. The rest. And we found ourselves saying things to guests and one in particular where the gentleman at the table said, gosh, um, the pork stinks uh, in general on menus and I'll have something else. And, and I intervened and I said, here's, here's what I'll promise you. It'll be the best pork you've ever had. 
Um, and if not, I'll buy your dinner. <laughs> and at Gibson's, that can be expensive. Sure. And at the end of the dinner, I had lost track of him and he and, and the three other individuals in his party got up. And as he started to leave, he stopped me. I was talking to someone else, patted me on the shoulder and he said, um, no need to pay the bill. <laughs> that's great. And that's one of my favorite stories. And it has you know less to do with, with how wonderful the food is, which is often, and more to do with what the food can do. Well, absolutely. Yeah. No, and I think that's what you're so good at with, with the company is building that experience and building those relationships. And I, you know, you, you when we, uh, before we got uh, started recording, you said, you know, we're very transparent. Can you talk about why that's so important to you to answer these questions, and if, you know, whether it's to diners in a restaurant or, you know, to people who call Nyman and ask these sorts of questions? Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, it really... Um we're privileged uh, with one of the answers. And the second one is, is really just a values, um, a values system. And so I'll do the privilege part is that, you know, as a, as a business person, as a marketer, um, you look for those things that, that give you a competitive advantage, all of those business things. And, and at Nyman, they're plentiful. And, and because the truth is actually what, the answer to the question, mm -hmm. well, what makes Nyman different is what makes the food taste better and what allows farmers and ranchers to thrive and what allows animals to exhibit their normal behavior. It's, it's all the same strand of, of behavior. And so being transparent is actually good for business. And, and so when we tell our story, it's the same. The, if we deviate, we're lying. And so the truth is not just the right thing to do from a value standpoint, which is a, a moral uh, compass for this company. It, it is also good business. Mm -hmm. And so when we tell the story, the, there's no one in the organization that would knowingly deviate from the truth because the truth is, is right. And it is what we do every day. Right. And if it isn't, if the person listening goes, I don't really like that, our answer is, I don't care if you like it. It's what we're going to do. We're going to do it every time. We'll never deviate knowingly. And if we make a mistake, we'll apologize, own it, and not make the mistake again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, you haven't always been, though, in, in the natural food industry, you, you know, and no. where transparency is so important. So why, you know, move your career to, to companies that have, you know, that mission and those values that you've talked about? So uh, a couple of things, um, and that's a deep question. Um, and, and so a couple of things. One is I started my career with Procter and & Gamble and, and learned a lot about business, both good and bad. Mm -hmm. Wonderful company. Um, and then moved what I'll, I'll call kind of down the sophistication spectrum, but up the value spectrum. And, and what that was, was, you know, the, the, the typical two, two uh, voices you hear, one on each shoulder, one says, you know, improve the business, make more money, make more profit, do what's necessary. And that voice was becoming weaker over time um, because I found there was no end to that. Mm. There was always the desire for more. There was always pressure for more. Um, 
public companies generally live in that space with analysts calls and, and performance expectation on the street, all of those things. And, and if your value system isn't rock solid, that becomes a, a very um, challenging and slippery conversation to have with yourself. Um, at the same time, I had the opportunity to spend more time with companies that said, well, I'm not very good at the whole business idea, but I have a wonderful mm. issue. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, yeah, but you're a terrible operator. <laughs> right. And, and they said, I know, but can you help us? And I was like, well, oh, I can bring the skills that were from somewhere else um, and, but apply them through the, the keyhole of the vision or mission. And that is not to make more money. It's to make enough money to thrive but to allow the rest of the system to thrive with you. Mm-hmm. And that is a concept not shared at most publicly traded companies. Right. They want to win and they'd like someone to lose. Right, right. And a lot of the companies that you talk to and that, that, that we frequent share a belief of everyone can thrive because it's good business. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, so I saw that at Frontier. I saw that at, at White Wave, I've seen that at, at many, many companies I've consulted with when I own my own consultancy. And and then at Coleman, we had a chance to do that, to, to put it into play where we could start and craft the entire organization around that concept. And it worked very well. And we had a chance to acquire Nyman in, in the next uh, position I had. Um, we brought all of that, that kind of experience to bear, and we did it better at Nyman, I think. Um, and we've seen throughout the entire network, farmer, you know, all family farmers, but hundreds and hundreds of them all doing better. And, and it's mm-hmm. you know, the, the challenge we have though, is when the general community commodity is doing poorly, the Nyman community of farmers and ranchers is doing so, right. so much better Especially that, right now. Yes. I mean, and, and that's, I was looking this morning at kind of the math, the pricing. And, and I'm looking, our farmers today are getting paid roughly double what a commodity farmer is getting paid. Explain to our listeners why that's sure. happening. So, so not, first I'll explain Nyman. Nyman doesn't really care what the marketplace is doing. Mm-hmm. There's, we're not you know, um, having an, an adversarial relationship producer to processor, which is normal for agriculture. Our relationship is we have farmers that agree with what we're doing. We want them to do it. We know that for them to thrive, to do well, we have to pay them more than they're investing so that their families can do well. They can, they can have all those things that we want in, with our life and our families. And so that's the fundamental principle. Our farmers, no matter what, will always make money. Other, no one in agriculture has that relationship that I know. Right, right. It's and very so, unusual. So when a market, a commodity, when there are tariffs and, and economic challenges across borders, across oceans, um, as well as the adversarial producer-processor relationship, when you put the two of them together, you have absolute winners and absolute losers and you can see it you can add it up and you go i know exactly who that is 
when we were at the hog dinner a month ago, the average hog farmer in the United States was losing around $35 per animal they raised. Mm. Losing. So every animal they dropped off with a company, they also dropped off a $35 bill in essence. You go, well, why would they do that? Well, they're, they're racing to either have the marketplace change, which they don't control, or go out of business. And, and it's a race. At the, for Nyman farmers, that's never a race. Mm-hmm. They will always make money, whether it's one animal or a thousand. And we'll have that be true 365 days a year for every day that we've been here and every day that we see moving forward. So you, you put it into that context and you go, no wonder family farming in the United States, specifically hogs, kind of our business, has been decimated. We've seen over 97% of hog farmers in the United States have disappeared since 1950. It's crazy. If that was an endangered species, that, if, that was, if that was an animal or a plant in the United States, it'd be on the endangered species right. list. Except these are people, these are families and communities that are just being destroyed. Right. It's not just the the farmers themselves. It's the whole sort of infrastructure around them. Communities disappear as well. Little towns and and cities are are rapidly just, you know, no one's living there. It is, is, um, in my mind's eye, the most um, dark place I go at work. And because I've driven through those towns to visit with family Mm -hmm. farmers. And you you drive through an area that, and and you've been to those places, You, you came from one. Yep. Where... You know, they go, here's a picture in the local cafe or drugstore or grocery store or bank that showed it in 1900, 1950, and it was vibrant, and it was um, all those positive things that a quaint small town in middle America is or was. And then you look outside that door, and you see a place that doesn't resemble that picture at all. You see more boarded up buildings than you see open ones. You see the average age of that community being very old because all the youth is leaving. You see school districts that are expanding so that a a child's not on a bus for five minutes. They're on a bus for 55 minutes and they're they're in first grade. And you go, that's wrong. It's wrong in this country to to allow this to happen when we have the ability to to not let it happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I'm glad motivates us every day. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought up youth, you know, kind of early on in this conversation, because one thing that I was sort of struck by visiting with you all and going to the farm uh, in in Iowa is that there are a lot of young people working for Nyman Ranch there. And there are a lot of young women who are working directly with farmers. And is that something that you sort of, you know, looked to build having these these young folks be part of the company? Yes, not initially. Initially, I didn't. Um, I didn't realize that in 2006 when when I came to Nyman when we acquired Nyman. Um, back then, we had a, a vibrant farming community: uh, hog farmers, cattle ranchers, and so on. Um, but at one point, we we identified the age, the average age, and it was alarming. Yeah, it, it was quite old. It was it was older than the national average for farming. Once we understood, that's because it's the old way. I mean, people look at Nyman as a new phenomenon. And in in practicality, um, 
we are doing on the land what was done a hundred years ago. It's, it's the old way, animals running around on pasture, mm-hmm. um, doing all those things, and the farmers are, are shepherds of that. They, they have a responsibility to those animals on the land. And, and so what happened is that was an older group. The younger group was into more modern agriculture or not getting into agriculture at all. And so we started, well, six, seven years ago to try to address that. And we did uh, a series of things that now have turned into, you know, like a waterfall. Mm-hmm. Of, I mean, it, it's amazing. We have gone, we were about, our average age was about 64, 65 years old, 12 years ago. Today, it's 47. Love it. That's great. And and so what we, we did is we first went to the areas of problem. Lenders didn't want to lend a young person money because um, that land was being converted to more expensive use, um, housing developments and so on. So that young person had to compete for land costs. They had to buy expensive equipment. They had to buy expensive livestock, all those things that were barriers for a young person to enter unless the family was handing down the land and then there was inheritance issues and taxes and so on. So what we've done is we put together about a 16 point program to help a young person enter farming. Everything from co-signing notes with the bank to providing livestock for free or not having them pay for the livestock um, because we would help them get started until after we bought the animals back from them. So all those things that would allow them uh-huh. to at least have a fighting chance to get into the business. Is mentoring part of that 16-point plan for young farmers, helping them learn from, from older farmers? Absolutely. That's just a year old. So it's in its infancy. It's being piloted. What we had is, is a series of we, – we, we got a group of young farmers together and asked them to advise us. And they said, well, they were kind of embarrassed. And they said, you know, some of the stuff, like basics, we don't know. Right. We don't know how to – so we had a group of older farmers, more experienced farmers, do videos on very practical things. Nice. Two, three, two, three minutes long. Then they started to actually work with the youth, the younger farmers, kind of on a one-to-one relationship, a, a very much a mentoring program where they would call them and talk through their problems or their questions. And that helped the group. And then we also said that the people advising, we have more um, people in the field working to help farmers than we do salespeople in the company. But we realized that group was kind of old. Mm. And so an older person talking to a younger one is fine, but we needed to get younger on those field agents is what we call. And so we brought in um, a group of young field agents, eight or nine of them over the course of a few years that are young and energetic and excited and embracing the future with these young farmers. Right. It's partners. And the majority of them are female. I love that's it. Not, yeah. That's not design. That's by their interest sure. and the fact that they're outstanding. No, and I was able to meet at least one of them, if not a, a couple. And they're so great. They're so knowledgeable. And they were really, you know, in, interested in, in what other people were doing. That You can tell that they, they love the farmers they're working with. It was really cool to, to be able to be around them. Yeah, it, it's energizing. I mean, I have a senior team here that's old, and, and it's energizing for us. It must be what like uh, a similar feeling 
as a teacher has when they surround themselves with youth, they kind of get that little bounce to their step and and view the world a little differently. And, and that's happening at the senior level of our company as well now. That's why everyone at Food Tank is much younger than me. They energize me. <laughs> um, I find it hard to believe, but okay. One of the things that you said uh, uh, before about you know this idea of going forward and, and building this company by going back to some of these you know practices that were used a hundred years ago. Can you dig deeper into that? You know what what kind of practices are you talking about? What makes what makes Nyman Ranch pork taste better because of these practices? Yeah, that's, and so I'll explain, I'll, I'll go a little bit broader, but then I will specifically answer that. So the, the principle behind what we do is, is, you know, where you put the kind of the stake in the ground is that we only work with family um, run and owned farms mm-hmm. and ranches. So by definition, you have this group of labor that cares very deeply because it's kind of their name on the front of the building. It's, it's their home. Um, whatever size that is, it, it's their home. And in many, many cases it was handed down from a, a parent, a grandparent, so on and so forth. So there's a sense of obligation and caring that you can't hire. You can't, you can't make, it's not a, a cultural thing that you can develop. It, it's who they are. So when you start with that, the protocols or the rules we have are very, very close to what they would do anyway. Mm-hmm. So you're not trying to push water uphill or get them to do something so different. You're going to a group of people that say, I am a steward of the land, I'm a steward of, of the animals. I have an obligation to do that in a way that wouldn't embarrass me or my family or generations that came before me. That's their going in thought. And we're on, we're, we are perfectly aligned. What we bring that's a little different is we go, we're not going to change any of that, but here's what we'd like you to do. Uh-huh. We'd like you to use certain genetics because we know the meat tastes better. And that farmer goes, well, that's fantastic. They're, they're not wed to specific genetics. They're wed to practices, how you treat it, how you treat the animal. We talk to them about feed and we say, look, we know you want to feed it your way, but we want to make sure the calories and the diet are appropriate, that it's not you know, in some way challenging to the animal or let the true genetics, the true quality shine through. And so that's a very clean diet. It uses local um, uh, so that the costs are lower, the farmer can can thrive. And, and so we require that. And the farmer's usually delighted because they're going, gosh, it's not only local, but it, I can see the animal's behavior uh, in a way that is better than if I was using maybe a more prescribed commodity diet. Right. And then we add, and this is the part that is arduous, but, but worth the journey. And that is that all of our protocols on anything we do go through Dr. Uh, Dr. Temple Grand and a friend of the organization, a friend of mine. And Temple and I sit down every couple of months and she reviews anything we might be questioning or concerned about. She gives us advice, things we might not have thought about. And then we take it back to our group and say, Temple recommends this. And no one is brave enough <laughs> to go, I disagree. We all go immediately. And, and then we just have to figure out how to do it uh, with 600 or 700 or 800 farmers 
so that they can actually execute it. And, and that usually takes a little time, but she never asks for anything, which is the beauty of it. Right. And she never asks for anything that the animal doesn't need. Right. Just to describe, I mean, Temple Grandin is, is sort of a, uh, I don't know how to describe her. She's just a monument to animal welfare. She's been studying sure. animal behavior her whole career and has, you know, really revolutionized how animals are raised in this country, just to give our listeners a sense of, of who right. she is and why she carries so much clout. She does. There is no one I trust more with that answer on what to do than her. Absolutely. And there's many smart people, but there's no one I trust more. And she's she is so practical. She doesn't care about profit. She doesn't care about any of that. She wants practical things that help help the animals. What she brings in addition that we were very light on, uh, meaning not not adequate years ago. And that was we didn't connect the animal treatment and practices and feed uh, with sustainable agriculture. With, uh. And I don't mean that in the generic sense of, you know, everybody claims sustainability. Sure. I mean it in, in very, very specific ways. And whether that's uh, an area of, of um, protecting from uh, runoff into a local water supply and putting in a grass buffer strip to protect against mm-hmm. that, how big should it be? And how do you make sure that soil health is the optimal concern of the farmer? So what's the proper rotation? so that you're building soil health instead of depleting it. And and she is as gifted in that area as she is in animal care, and she won't disconnect the two. I love it. I mean, that, that's brilliant, right? It makes sense. It it, yeah. it it helps it helps the animals. It helps the farmer. It does everything it's supposed to. It helps the environment. Yes, everybody wins. Hey everyone, Steve Ray Morris here, producer of Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg, wanted to jump in with a little announcement. Join us for a live Food Talk in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill in the Rayburn Building on May 10th. And we also have another event at New York City at NYU on May 14th. We will also be hosting events in partnership with Mother Jones on May 29th in San Francisco and June 5th in Los Angeles. These will all be announced soon enough with more cities and dates. Tickets are already announced first and are free to attend for Food Tank members. Become a member Member of Food Tank now at foodtank.com slash join. See you there. It's amazing. I mean, I, I I think, you know, what the company has been able to do has, you know, you've built this reputation, people trust you, but how do you communicate that to consumers? And, you know, especially younger consumers and and others. I mean, it's is it through new product development? Is it through explaining, you know, what some of these terms mean, whether it's, you know, certified humane or antibiotic free how how do you go about educating the the folks who buy your product so that's um we obviously spend a lot of time on that um and and we don't do the traditional approach um and and here's why we only have meat from our farmers our network of farmers and so that's a defined amount. If we have demand that's greater than the amount of meat we have, then we can't service the demand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't go, oh, we'll get some more. There is no more to get. It's only what our farmers raise. So we're always cognizant if we don't want to make a promise for more product that our farmers can deliver. Because our farmers own their own land. They own the animals. We're just you know, kind of privileged to be the go-between, so to speak, on that. 
So, so we don't want to be big. We want to have a nice growth. Say that again, uh, Trip. Say that again, because yeah, I think it's important. Our, yeah, our, our goal is to not be bigger. Our goal is to make sure that the farmers that want to do what we want, that our customers are willing to pay for, we have enough of that. If that means 10 more farmers or 100 more farmers, whichever one, fine. Um, and because we have to make sure that we have as excited a farmer to right. be in this program as we do a customer. And so so the answer to your question is we spend more time, Danny, saying we don't think you're the right partner, right customer, mm -hmm. than we do saying we think you are the right customer. And I that's just that's just weird. Yeah, it's I mean, it, it completely is the opposite of whatever other companies are doing. I mean, it's just, right. uh, yeah, that's why I love so, you all so much. I mean, that so, that so, right there. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. At the, at the dinner you went to last month, all of the guests paid their own way. They paid their airfare. They paid their hotels. We paid for dinner um, and they contributed to the scholarship fund. Those are our customers. That's that's not normal. Right. And so so we take that idea and we go around the country and we say, do you resemble those kind of people? And we have lots of chefs going, where have you been? I've been waiting for you, so so to speak, or or something like that. And we go, well, we're finally here. We were, we were just slow and we're here now and we have enough supply of the meat that you want that does all the things that we say it does. And we'll go show them. We'll take them out. So we spend a lot of time proving that we are trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And and so we'll take them. They get to walk around on a farm. They get to talk to the farmer. And if they'd like us to wait in the in the pickup and they'll talk to them when no one's listening, it's like, that's fine, too. Um, and at the end, they kind of go, I get it. They They try the meat. They ask why it tastes like that. We show them the farm. They meet the farmer. We've done our biggest deals we've ever done across a kitchen table in a farmer's <laughs> house, not in a boardroom or a meeting sure. room or something. So so there's that sense of, look, if you want this, it's here. If you don't want this, we don't have anything else. We don't do anything else. Yeah. So there's nothing else for them to buy. The chefs usually pay a handsome amount of money for that. And so they put us on the menu. They say Nyman Ranch pork chop or mm -hmm. lamb chop or steak or bacon whatever it is. And so the guests, the patrons that go to those restaurants that trust that chef go Nyman Ranch, tell me about that. So we spend a lot of time doing staff training so that the staff, the, the, the uh, waiter, waitress, the, the, whoever it is there, the chef in some cases says, well, let me tell you about that. I've been there. I've seen it. We have farmers come and visit. Um, and so they're excited telling our story for 30 seconds or so. And a right. guest goes, gosh, I'll try it. It's the best pork chop, steak, lamb chop they've ever had. They ask why. They tend to go online or or talk to somebody that knows the answer. And they and they tell them. Sometimes they get the details a little confused, but but generally it's it's the right. it's the right attempt at the answer. Right. And we now have another person that says, I've had the greatest ever over at this restaurant. I'm going to buy it at my local grocery mm -hmm. store. 
those people tend to go to specialty markets, natural markets, uh, boutique grocers, where Nyman is dominant. We're, we're the number one selling in eight of the 10 categories at a specialty grocery store in the meat department. Wow. It's amazing. So, so you get this chef that re- recommends it. You get the consumer that says, wow. They go in, they ask the grocer. The grocer says, I was at the same place. I have some of the product right here. And you have this little group of people that are highly motivated because of the things that we put on the menu or put on the label or the chef, the butcher or the wait staff talks about. And so it's this truly grassroot oriented kind of word of mouth, the old days. You know, you tell somebody you had a good or a bad experience and word of mouth. Yeah. I don't spend $1 a year advertising. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I mean, the storytelling component is so part, so, you know, it's such an integral part of, of what you do. And I'm wondering, you know, I, I would be remiss if we didn't bring this up, if the, the Purdue acquisition a few years ago uh, messed up that story? Do you feel, you know, I, I, I feel like from what I've heard from Paul Willis and from others and Jim Purdue himself, that nothing has changed, uh, since they, they acquired Nyman, but, you know, I'd like to hear you talk about it. And do you think that, you know, again, does that, does that mess up your story a little bit? Does that, uh, sully what, what Nyman has tried to do or does it help, you know, does it do the opposite? Yeah. So I'll, I'll answer the, kind of the question and then I'll, I'll give the longer answer, which is kind of the way I seemingly do everything. Um, so no, it hasn't stayed the same. We are better today mm-hmm. because of Purdue mm-hmm. than we were before Purdue. And I would have never thought three years after they acquired us, I would have said that when really? we were owned by private equity. So when you're owned by private equity, you know, you're going to be sold. I mean, they buy you, to sell you and make money between the two. Sure. So, so we knew that was always going to be the case. And we worried, you know, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? And, and we gave our private equity owner a list. And we said, look, if we can pick, here's the rank order. And Purdue was right up there at the top. Family run really? company driven by beliefs that were not inconsistent with ours, which does not mean they were the same as ours, just not inconsistent. And, and so then that actually happened and we were like, wow, this is, this is really going to be fine. The goal was fine. No change. Mm-hmm. So much so that we went to the next farm dinner, the, the one you went to, but three years ago. And I asked Purdue to stand up in front of everyone and say they wouldn't change anything. And we listed the top 10 things they would not change. And we handed it out and Purdue stand, stood right there. And said, I promise. And we were like, well, we kind of got you on video. <laughs> and because we said, you know, it's important to us. We don't want to break right. our promises to people. And since then, they have not broken one of the promises. But what we weren't smart enough or we thought we were being too naive is we said, can you actually make us better? And if you had Jim Purdue on this, he would say we made Purdue better. And he did say that. Yeah. When I talked to him, he did. Yeah. But what I would say is they've made us better and and, or allowed us to be better. Mm -hmm. Might be a bit. Because every month when I talk to them, 
Jim starts and ends the conversation with words like this. He goes, Trip, is there anything we're doing that is troubling you um, at Nyman? And I say no, um, because that's the answer. And then when he ends it, he goes, what do you need from us? How can we help? Now, the middle can, is a business conversation, but the beginning and the end is just like that. And, and so I say things today that if I said it to private equity, they would just say no. Mm-hmm. But Purdue says yes. They have not turned me down on one request in three years. Wow. Now, I only request things we need. <laughs> but when I say I need you to, to let me give to see if, if I give livestock to young farmers free, and that costs us hundreds of thousands of dollars. I want to see if that gets us more young farmers. Will you let me do that? Jim says, how many hundreds of thousands are we talking about? And the answer is yes. Incredible. And then if it works, I go, Jim, I appreciate that. I want to do more. If it's not, I go, I'm sorry. That was a really lousy idea. But I have another idea. And to date, they have not said no to one thing. And and that was something if three years ago I had hoped for that and said it out loud, people would say I was silly. And and so that that's been nothing but a, a great um, a great partnership. And because I, I think we've helped them do some things, too. No, and I mean, that's really good to hear because I think there was, you know, from some folks in the sustainable ag movement who had uh, initial trepidation. And it's good to hear that, you know, and, and what I heard from Jim Perdue is he's trying to learn from your practices. And, you know, that's also very enlightened of him. So, I, you know, I applaud that. But before we go, I want you to be able to talk about these scholarship funds that you've mentioned a couple of times and, and why the, the company feels they're so important. Yeah, the first one we did uh, was maybe a dozen years ago, and we had one of our younger farmers that was very active, a gentleman that that um, is uh, their names were the Surflings, and he had some young children, and he passed away in a farming accident. Uh. And and it was you know we were a smaller company then we you know the, we were much smaller we were third the size we are today here, and 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 everyone felt that in the room, you know, everybody looked around and you could see there, you know, you could not only tell the, the emotion in the room, but there was a hole in the room and, mm-hmm. and no one knew what to do. You know, we were, but we saw a young family and, uh, there was grieving and, and, you know, every, the local community were rallied around them. So that was wonderful. But we said, we have to do something. So we said, let's do a scholarship. Um, their children are too young, but, but let's do a scholarship in their name. And we'll help other kids that are that are challenged. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had very small amount of money. It was like let's have a thousand dollar scholarship, right? And and we did one. And then each year, we've had customers of ours that attend the event donate money. And it was it was very organic at the beginning. We did a thousand dollar, and like one of them stood up. Steve L stood up one time and said, "Well, I'll double it." And we were like, "Wow." Steve Bell's from Chipotle, you know, right. and the next year somebody said, well, Steve's going to double it. I'll double it. And, and the next thing you know, this past year, we gave out 32 scholarships for almost $150,000. And the only requirements are that it has to be a, 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 a young person that is trying to go back to their local community to help it thrive. Right. 
initially it was you had to be in farming. And then, you know, we had that moment where we went, well, maybe it's not farming because maybe that community needs a veterinarian Mm -hmm. or a doctor or an accountant or a grocery store owner. And, And so we've expanded who that you need to help your community thrive. And and so we've not turned away, to my knowledge, any any um, applicant. Um, we seem to have money just come up and and we've had customers of ours do things that are truly tr- just amazing. Um, and I'll just give you two very quick examples. The Marzik folks they have two grocery stores in in Denver um, and, and a, a wonderfully educated staff. And every year they raise money Two little grocery stores. This year, they raised over $30,000. Wow. And I just had, and an, after this hot dinner, I think you met with the folks from Daniele Foods up in Rhode mm-hmm. Island. Mm-hmm. It's a Vukovic family, wonderful people. And they called and they said, you know, we don't think we're doing enough. And I said to, to the owner, I said, you're doing a wonderful job. We appreciate it. Right. And he goes, well, I want to have a little bit of everything we sell, uh, you know, a, a small amount of everything we sell. Uh, and when we work together, I want to put it in a fund. And at the end of the year, let's see how much money it is. And, and I said, that's, that's amazing that a company that's not us is taking a little bit of the proceeds from the products they sell and putting it into a fund to help farming community kids that they don't know. Right. So it's important to us. Yeah, and I, I mean, it, it speaks a lot to how you and your your colleagues and, and the whole staff really inspire others. So, I mean, it was a delight to, to be able to meet you in person and meet so many farmers at at the appreciation dinner. So thank you for inviting me and letting me interrogate folks a little bit while I was there. Um, I'm yeah. really glad I got to speak to you today, too. Thank you so much, Trip. Oh, likewise. And look... I uh, thank you for coming. It, it'll be an invitation every year. Um, and I look forward to seeing you at, at the upcoming event, the, the Food Tank event. Yeah. So, so Jeff will be speaking at our Food Tank Summit on November 14th in San Diego. We'll be live streaming it. So I encourage everyone to uh, hear what he has to say there as well. Well, thank you very much. And I appreciate on behalf of the farmers. Thank you for your help. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com. Email me at danielle at foodtank.com. And follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk. Thank you again for listening. Join us to see the podcast recorded live at the upcoming Food Talk event in a city near you by visiting foodtank.com slash events. Tickets are always free for Food Tank members, so join now and we'll see you there.